Good evening, everybody. So glad you could join us tonight. Uh, joining us on Zoom, we've got uh, Keith and Rannigan and Cynthia and Paul. And here at Wilton, I've got uh, Randy and Don and John. And uh, joining us for the first sitting was a very surprise uh, guest we had. Uh, Mark Doman is in town. Uh, and he came with his uh, charming second cousin, Brianna, but they can only stay for the first sitting. Uh, so I had a couple of uh, kind of sidebars, as I call them, that I wanted to start with this evening. Uh, the first one. Uh, dovetails nicely with part of my talk a week ago, where I introduced uh, the, the notion of, of Jeremiah Bodhisattvas. Well, lo and behold, uh, just a day or so ago, as I'm working through the, the 1619 project, uh, which I highly recommend, Almost like either this or Isabel Wilkerson's cast really should be an accompaniment to, uh, to radical dharma. And if you're in for really deep immersion like me, then you do both of them. <laughs> that I might not recommend to everybody, but, uh, but it's worthwhile if you so chose. But at any rate... Uh, uh, this text is broken down into uh, various topics, and this, the chapter I was working through uh, a day or two ago was on church and the relationship of the Black church to uh, what I actually also brought up when we first started uh, looking at radical dharma, the notion of uh, liberation theology which became maybe best known for some of us at least in terms of how that was applied in uh, certain Central American nations. But there was also a, an element of that that became referred to as black theology, which was also another form of liberation theology. So this chapter on church gets into that and the founding figures of that tradition. Uh, the most prominent one being, uh, I think it's first, that's James, James Cone, C-O-N-E. Uh, and James Cone was kind of the teacher of, uh, of of uh, Reverend Wright, the UCC minister whose church uh, Barack Obama attended. And actually he, uh, some footage of one of his sermons uh, caused Obama uh, some controversy because he, he was pretty outspoken. You know, they just cut one, one phrase from his talk where he's talking about goddamn America. <laughs> Pulling it out of context, although even within its context, it was still kind of in the spirit of Jeremiah. It was, uh, <laughs> it was that kind of, um, of, uh, of talk. Uh, so in this chapter, uh, they go into this. And they talk about how over the centuries, so going back to the, the first churches that were established by, by Blacks in this country uh, during colonial times even, it says over the centuries, Black preachers in America have used their pulpits just like Wright did to challenge the hypocrisy of white America's racism sometimes with harsh language. Black preaching by historical necessity used the Jeremiah, obviously derived from Jeremiah. It's a term used for like this type of sermon, which is 
pretty strongly expressing the moral failings of the present society and how uh, that needs to be called to the attention of the spiritual community. So using the Jeremiah, and then they describe it as a rhetorical mode of denunciation or chastisement about the corruption of people, events, or nations that stretches back to the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And it goes on further and talks about how the Puritans gave a special supernatural legitimacy to the Protestant work ethic in the new world. They raised the success story to the status of visible sainthood. You know, kind of what we've termed today the prosperity gospel in some circles. It's a sign of, of godliness. Uh, and the clergy for that uh, worldview, uh, they bewailed the sloth of those who failed to take advantage of this good land, whither the Lord has sent us. Never mind how they came by possession of that land or how they worked that land with with the benefit of slavery. Uh, By contrast, the style of the black church that developed following the great awakening and in the antebellum period was one of prophetic witness to the moral outrage of racism in America. It was was the rhetoric of dissent. And to bring it forward uh, closer to our time, in the the 20th century, black preachers decried lynching, Jim Crow, segregation, police violence, and other moral ills in America. Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership in the civil rights movement and his opposition to the Vietnam War exemplify this tradition as well. In a speech at Riverside Church in 1967, he declared that the government of the United States was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Powerful, (laughs) powerful expression of of this uh, Jeremiah uh, Bodhisattva path of calling attention to the ills of one society and the hypocrisy that is to be found all around us. And one of those hypocrisies now is... uh, is bringing forth an issue that uh, that many thought had been put behind us in the area of voting rights. It's very much under attack, which is kind of at the heart of our democracy. So to continue to hold ourselves forth, not just here in our own nation, but across the globe as these, these uh uh, just exemplars of of the democratic way of life is hypocrisy just beyond belief. And you know, one example just off the wires today from Reuters about uh, what's going on in Georgia. And of course, we don't have to go that far afield. It's, it's uh, with the... Uh, contesting of of the uh, gerrymandering that's taking place here in Ohio. Uh, It's very much underway here too. But in Georgia, you know, essentially what what has happened there is that uh, passage of, of Senate Bill 202 restricted ballot access statewide and allowed the Republican-controlled state election board to assume control of county boards that it deems underperforming. 
And one such example was Spalding County, which is a rural patch south of Atlanta. And it's one of the six county boards that Republicans have quietly reorganized in recent months. Uh, and the changes expanded the party's power over choosing members of local election boards. And part of that change involved uh, for the last election, this board had a democratic majority of three of their members were made up of black women. They're now gone, as is the black election supervisor in the county. Now a faction of three white Republicans controls the board. Just one example of what's underway in many states. And what the 2022 elections, the midterms look like and, and the next presidential election in 2024, it's not gonna be uh, what we're, what we, many of us would term a democratically uh, run election. It's not that each vote is going to count equally. In fact, the name of the game is to try to, uh, to reduce the number of voters if they're not reliable votes for your particular party and to take steps to make that happen. So it's disturbing. And there will be, there have been and will continue to be, I'm quite certain, many Jeremiahs, many Jeremiah Bodhisattvas from many different traditions that uh, speak to this. And that's important. It's important. We're kind of living through uh, times that that rise to the level of what uh, what Jeremiah experienced two and a half millennia ago. Good to keep that in mind. This is the benefit of, of being aware of the past, the, the more immediate past, but even going back that far. So with that, let's go ahead and get back into radical Dharma then. Uh, and where I wanted to start with this evening is where Angel talks about changing human behavior and, tr and transforming on an individual level. Because I think we can all lose heart and, and kind of give up any hope of, of affecting change if we look at it in a broad scope. But even within the, the broad scope, it's, it's going to be impacted by reaching people deeply, one by one. So that's the role that everybody can So if the more people we have involved in this, if each one just within their very immediate circle can have an impact, a real impact in a transformational way, it will, it will go forward and there will be transformation on a, on a broader societal level. 
And Angel goes on to say that the human being that sits inside a racialized identity by nature of the society that we're in, uh, there's a person in there that's pre all of those identities, the various identities we carry around with us. And that's an important truth to, to also hold within ourselves and to not lose sight of the fact that, that we need to recognize that all of these ways we have of defining another individual don't get to the heart of it, of who they are. There's a person in there that, that's prior to all these identities that get layered on top of them. And that's true for ourselves, obviously, as well. It's true for everybody. There's always something that's operating outside of that. Outside of that, whether it's whiteness, blackness, or being a, a man or a woman, or any of the ways we have of identifying ourselves, that's not still getting to the heart of, of who that individual is, of who we are. And if we're gonna be together, in a community. And of course, our three authors never stray very far from, from the, the importance of love, then we have to meet each individual in their totality, which is the only way that love can truly come forth is in their entirety. And it's in that totality that we actually experience the connectedness. So in one sense, you know, we as white people can look at uh, the plight of black people and say, well, that doesn't really affect us. Of course, this is a constant theme in radical dharma. That's, that's terribly mistaken. It very much affects us in, in a number of different ways. It's not just one simple way. There's the obvious way that, uh, that when we commit injustice, it's injustice committed that it affects all beings sometimes referred to as blowback, <laughs> if you need to be even more graphic in describing it to get a sense of how that works. But, uh, you know, just like going back to the days of slavery, part of that blowback was the fact that the slaveholders in the South lived in deep fear of an uprising. Even in the framing of the Constitution, we hear so much about the Second Amendment these days and the right to carry arms because of the importance of, of a militia. Well, the principal role of the militia that they had in mind back in, in 1787 when they're drafting the Constitution was to put down slavery values. This is why you needed arms. This was a very big deal. And that constitution definitely would not have been approved if it weren't for that Second Amendment having been included. Of course, that's not the only part of the constitution that, that uh, deals with the slavery issue. Certainly the, the three-fifths of a vote that, uh, that each slave counted for in terms of determining representation. 
so that the slaveholding states would uh, would be able to to uh, have some uh, dominant role nationally to protect their uh, their ability to continue to own slaves. And it's not something we typically think about, but where did almost all of the first group of presidents hail from? The state of Virginia. Pull John Adams out of the mix, the Massachusetts guy who only served one term, everybody else served two terms. You know, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, all from the South, from Virginia, all serving a full eight years, two terms. And the Federalist Party was done by 1800. So just some of the history again behind this. But the other way that it that it involves us, that we can't say, well, it's that's their problem, is because if we do that, then we're kind of buying into this notion that their blackness kind of defines them. And there that's why it doesn't involve us. But if we go just a little bit deeper, these are fellow beings. They have what they have in common with me, with us. When we really look into that, the color of their skin is so superficial. It's like, how could that have anything to do with how we relate to them? So it's because they're fellow beings that we would respond calls forth our compassion. And anything else, especially the color of their skin, kind of falls to the wayside quickly, hopefully, because it just doesn't hold up. To the extent it does, it's a sign there's something else going on there, some need to separate ourselves out, which of course there was, you know, we get that. But to re remind ourselves of that, that it's not about who they are, it's about how we're choosing to relate to them because it serves some purpose for us. Whether it's a conscious, uh, arrangement on our part, or if it's just because we're born into the society and, and we kind of come to accept that as the way things are, which is probably the more common way that, that, uh, that prejudice, bias, bigotry is, uh, is passed on from generation to generation. But at its roots, it's to serve a purpose to hold dominion over fellow human beings. And that legacy, while slavery doesn't exist anymore, at least not in that outright form, the legacy is still very much with us. And that's exactly what so much of contemporary scholarship is looking at. And what raises such a furor in, uh, in political circles, what's termed critical race theory, the endemic nature of racism in our society and in our institutions. And in Buddhist term, terms, as Angel points out, you know, it's induced 
by conditioning, our conditioning. Because it is so deeply embedded in society. Maybe more so in Southern states, but it certainly covers the entire country. There's no part of the country that hasn't been touched by it. So as she says, the problem is not whiteness or blackness. Problem is the way in which we relate to those identities. And the way we relate to them comes back to how we perceive them. One of the tools that Buddhism provides us with is our understanding that these types of, of labels, of concepts, are just our fabrications that are designed to serve a certain purpose for us. And as I mentioned, pointed to earlier, you know, the purpose for, for turning race into a, a caste system is ser serving an obvious purpose for that ruling class. And we need to understand that. That's the problem. It's not whiteness or blackness or any of that. So ultimately, we're not our race. So to hold that in mind is as we look into a notion like white privilege, this kind of touches a raw nerve for, uh, for people of that race. Because it's, it's based kind of out of this truth, I think, that, well, you know, um, we're not defined by that. And you'd be right, we're not. But we need to recognize that that's very, very true of all colors, of all beings. We're not our race, we're not our gender, we're not any of these external conditions. And because of those conditions, they they're what form, what we refer to as our ancient twisted karma. So we do need to look into them. So when, when we look into a matter like white privilege, it's not <clears throat> something that's kind of digging into the heart of who we are, but it is digging into the ancient twisted karma that we all carry, carry around with us that we're embedded in. And that does sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in not so subtle ways, it does influence our view of, of others. And if it does that, it also is going to influence how we act with others, how we treat others. And this is why it's so important that we do look into it without the immediate defensive reaction, which is natural. 
and understandable. But to come back to this point that we're all caught up in the suffering created by, by this, by the racism endemic to our society. Uh, it's why it's so important that we all decide that it's finally time that we really do address this. And from what I see out there in terms of the journalism and the books coming out, it's being addressed far more extensively than I have ever seen before. There's just an outflow of work by scholars, by pundits, that's examining this legacy that our society carries with it. And I do think it's, it's really vital that we join in this. That's the purpose of radical Dharma. The other texts that I reference, to bring our practice into the world we're in. It's kind of like the 10th Oxfording picture which is hanging on the wall here at Wilton. So take a look at it on your way out, depicting post-enlightenment, the monk going back down into the, into the marketplace to care for his fellow beings, not to stay up on the mountaintop, not to stay sequestered, in the practice center, but to be out in the community and caring for other people, which is another way of talking about caring for our country, for our society. Come back to Angel's point earlier, it's one person at a time. There's no way of caring for a society, for a country that doesn't go that path. It doesn't involve our interactions one-on-one with this person, with this person, with this person. So we're all suffering as a result of our unwillingness to address and be conscious about race and its impacts. Hence the importance of studying things like the 1619 Project, looking at this uh, nearly uh, 500 year old or 400 year old uh, issue that we, we have, our legacy. And uh, hopefully come to a, a renewed appreciation of how rich the Dharma teachings are in terms of their applicability, even to these contemporary social issues that we face, the practices of the the four Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, loving kindness for all, compassion for all, sympathetic joy, universal, and equanimity with all.
if this could become part of the fabric of society. the ills of racism might finally be put behind us. And this certainly doesn't mean everybody needs to become a Buddhist because these seeds are within all of the traditions, including things like secular humanism. You don't even need to be particularly religious. The seeds are there shouldn't be surprising because that's also part of our true nature. So throughout history, they've been dropped and planted throughout the ages. And we need them very much now to carry them forward, drop them and plant them and nurture them. And that's at the heart of the message of radical Dharma. What is to be done? Basically, it's taking our practice out into the world, which equips us to be responsive to the various situations that arise. What that response is, isn't the important matter. What that response is rooted in, loving kindness, compassion, that's the essential piece to it. If it's rooted in those traits that make up our Buddha nature, then I think our society will fare quite well. There will be disputes, crises. That's inevitable. But it would be nice if, if underneath all of those disagreements, there was that fundamental recognition of of being part of this one community. That we never lose sight of that. And interestingly, from uh, this is where I think I'll uh, close out this evening with my comments. Uh, towards the end of this section, and the next section we'll we'll get into uh, the next Thursday. We come together to to work on this. Uh, that section's uh, radical Dharma love. Uh, but bef just before they they move into that section, uh, they talk about how what has gone awry in, in communities that have been developed and maintained by people who are holding white privilege is a refusal to interrogate certain areas. And this, of course, is kind of gets to the heart of, of uh, the current controversy over critical race theory. It's about a refusal to interrogate certain areas. But this, we don't want our children to be exposed to this. We need to protect them. And it's kind of frightening. It calls to mind even going outside of, of the, uh, the social political arena. It calls to mind trying to, to bury the teachings of, uh, of, of religion. Kind of like 
the Scopes trial in that sense, you, know, you can't teach evolution. Teacher was put on trial for having the audacity to teach high school students about evolution. We're going through that now with critical race theory. Our future might hold a, a 21st century Scopes trial involving, instead of evolution, critical race theory. I think it's almost inevitable. And that's disturbing. It should be for actually all neoliberals who are supposed to be based on, and here we get into this matter of hypocrisy about the free exchange of ideas. That we're not trying to bury over anything. Everything needs to be out there and discussed, discussed and analyzed. It's how we move forward in our understanding, in our knowledge. Actually constitutes one of the seven awakening factors. Even the Buddha uh, had, had this sense, that awakening factor being the investigation of dharmas. What, what uh, pretty similar, I think, to what Angel and her colleagues refer to is interrogation, interrogating. And they say, interrogate all of what you experience. That's our practice. You can go so far as to say there's no teacher that can tell you, don't look at that. And that means a lot to me. <laughs> It's another one of the reasons why this is the tradition I ended up uh, uh, settling into. That's not true of all traditions. As I think everybody gathered here is very, very aware of. But it needs to be part of everybody's approach. Because now, we look at our political system and this, this, uh, this uh, uh, proscribing of, of looking at certain things in certain ways and voting your conscience the way you see it is completely at high, high risk Dangerous, very dangerous. Interrogate all of what you experience. Apply that in our political world. We should require it. So that we don't have figures like Anthony Gonzalez who leave the arena because of the blowback when they do do that. Who openly looked into what was taking place between the November election and the events of January 6th. And came to his conclusion as to what needed to be done. But his colleagues would not allow that to go unpunished. Same with his colleagues from states like Wyoming and Illinois. So this, the uh, essential importance of interrogating. Everybody needs to do that. It's essential. The 
It's not just some adolescent phase we go through. Question authority. It should be part of our basic existence. And it does get to the heart of Buddhist practice. This ongoing interrogation. So I'm going to bow out and we still have some time for your thoughts on this. There isn't. John? Usually just right at that point. (laughs) I, I just keep thinking how much of both our economic system and our political system are based on the idea of zero-sum gain. Mm -hmm. The only way I can gain something is if you lose something. And so long as we stay stuck with that idea, I don't think we're going anywhere. You know, guiding principles of social media to owning the other side. It's, it's almost more important to do that than to make a positive statement. Yeah. They build their audience, and then it's, it's about taking care of that audience and getting them to watch you continuously, not to go anywhere else. We want you right here. And the way you do that is to push people's buttons. <laughs> so much of what I see is when we talk about the three poisons. Yeah. Greed, ignorance, anger. Yeah. And they're certainly right out front. They're, they're not hiding them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful to Buddhism for, for setting those front and center is the heart of our dukkha. That still resonates pretty deeply 2,500 years later. (laughs) Serious. Talk about your universal truth. But the only fine tuning maybe we could do is add a fourth one fear. Yep. Fear is what underlies anger. Anger is not a primary emotion. Mm-hmm. Anger is dependent upon fear. Mm-hmm.
Absolutely. Yeah. Let's make sure, uh, remind everybody that uh, Saturday we'll have, uh, actually we get two radical Dharma talks this week. Uh, just the next one won't, won't be presented by me, which is good news for all of us, I think. <laughs> so, uh, and that'll, I, if you didn't see my email yet, uh, that I sent out a few hours ago. We're going to do that completely by Zoom. So it'll kind of be a throwback to earlier this year. <laughs> we can get nostalgic for those good old days when we didn't have to leave our home. <laughs> we'll just look at our screens and see all the squares. <laughs> Will that be recorded also? Uh, probably. Casey. Will we be able to record that? Oh, yeah, no problem. Yep. So that will, we will sit, uh, we'll, it'll follow our normal format. 9.30, we'll start our round of two sittings, and then 10.40, we'll finish up, and they'll, their talk will begin about 10.50. Have a short transition period from the second sitting to that. So, all right. Let's go ahead and change that. I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species, to support others in our work for the world, and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. All right.